Greetings, Zimbabwe, Africa, and the world. Welcome to In Conversation with Trevor, brought to you by Titan Law. I go beyond the headlines and beyond the sensational. Today, I'm in conversation with the managing director of Nyama.Bantu, Elif Gulandebele. Enjoy this inspirational conversation. Elef Gulandebele, welcome to In Conversation with Trevor. Thank you, leadership. Thank you for having me. You yeah. know, uh, we decided to have you here, uh, Elif, because your story represents the story of a lot of young Zimbabweans, uh, your generation, mm -hmm. who are trying to make it uh, in these uh, tough times. Uh, and, and we thought um, your story would, uh, would, would help people uh, navigate uh, or deal with the kind of issues that they're dealing with. You, you have, in 2018, you decided to come back home mm -hmm. and you started uh, this startup called uh, Nyama.Vandu. Mm -hmm. uh, talk to me about what Nyama.Vandu is and um, perhaps in the first instance, the name itself. <laughs> it's an interesting name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for having me, first of all, and uh, I'm actually honored to, to hear you say that you think my story might inspire or at least um, lead to other people understanding and um, seeing the decision map that I took to come here, but uh, thank you for having me. Nyama um, Dotwantu. I think, well, in our family, we've basically been cattle ranchers and um, we've run a lot of uh, distribution and retail outlets like butcheries. Um, in the last 20 or so years. So it's something that is not particularly foreign to me. It's something that I knew something I was comfortable with, mm. aside from, you know, the professional qualifications and all of that. Um, <clears throat> when I came back in 2018, I decided to start this because I saw that there was a, a gap in the market. Um, I felt, specifically with the diasporan market in, uh, in mind, mm. I think there was, there's probably like a trust deficit with regard to people who are outside the country and people who are at home. In terms of Uguti, you know, sometimes you send money and then you hear, ah, Maria Zodaiso, Maria Zodaiso, when you actually just want to send people food. Mm -hmm. So the idea was to create a platform where we could literally just get people who are outside the country to send actual food to people mm -hmm. through Inyama or, you know, whatever. And um, the business started off in the most uh, innocuous of ways because what we initially were doing at the time was uh, we'd go out to far-flung rural areas like Omsarabani, you know, Kaitano, like Mkumbura, very far, Hurungwe, Kareresha, all those kind of places that we used to go to, spend two or three nights in the bush <coughs> um, making friends with mosquitoes and uh, the local people there and buying the meat and, you know, buying cattle from them. So that's what we initially were doing, I think, at the beginning, at the inception of the business, before we even had a name and decided what it was. And um, we realized that there was actually an opportunity to vertically integrate, as opposed to just being cattle traders. Yeah. We could actually then become a vertically integrated business where we control basically most, if not all, of our processes in the value chain. Yeah. So from production and procurement all the way up to sales and distribution. Yeah. So as is, with the only part of our production value chain that we do not control is the, for example, like an abattoir. We don't have one yet. Okay. So that was the idea behind Yamadotwantu. And the name, so eventually we're like, so, look. So before we get to the yeah. name, do you describe for us the, 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 the entire process uh, of the business, what does it look like? What it looks like right now is that there's a feedlot that is, you know, in the process of being constructed, mm -hmm. where we are going to be slaughtering and um, feeding our own beef and all of that. Mm -hmm. So every 90 days we take beef out and then we get it slaughtered at an abattoir that's probably close around our area. And then we distribute through our own retail outlets. We've got a flagship uh, store in Highfield in Machipisa, where we basically sell from. And then we also have an online platform that is supposed to cater for the diaspora market where anyone in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Botswana, UK, America, you can order your meat with us online. And then we will take payments, uh, visa, credit card, and whatever. And then we will distribute and we'll give to your relatives here back home. 
and then we also have a retail side where we basically deal with online. I mean, uh, with walk-in traffic, um, and we are in a what I would call my spiritual home, like my chief Highfield, because mm. I grew up. I was born in Highfield. Okay, and uh, my wife as well. She was born in Highfield, mm. and uh, so it's got a lot of symbolic importance for me because that's literally the area that made me. So it was very fortuitous and. Um, I think just a sign from God that we needed to be in that space mm. when we got that space. Mm. So we operate from a chipisa for our walk-in traffic. And um, I mean, we've opened now for more or less seven months. Okay. And it's been many ups and many downs. Mm. I can tell you that much. But I mean, I wouldn't trade the experience for anything else. Awesome. Yeah. And, and, and um, we'll get to the ups and downs. Mm. And the name? Nyama.bantu. So... <clears throat> um, at the core of our identity as Nyamadotwantu is the creed of Ubuntu. Umuntu, Umuntu, Ngabantu. You know, Umunu, Umunu, Nevanu. In our interactions, especially with rural communities uh, and the way we were going about buying meat, we're not buying from abattoirs and big commercial suppliers, you know. Mm -hmm. We were going and interacting with, um, uh, you know, people, people on the ground your grandfather, you know, Sekuru, and so on and so forth, people that you had to speak to and understand why are they selling the cattle and, you know, what, what has brought about this need for them to sell. And so it created an understanding of our market for us that is completely different from what a lot of um, our competitors do. And the idea with saying Yamadotwantu was the dot is obviously influenced by the dot com, the bubble yeah. area, so trying to be more techy and all that kind of stuff. But more importantly for us, the Bantu, Yamabantu was to to inculcate a culture of ubuntu and i mean if you come to our shop and you see our branding it really speaks speaks to that mm. it speaks to the idea that we are an african um an african story that is being told through our endeavors mm. so umuntu, umuntu, ngabantu, we teach respect you know we teach the idea was to also create shared values with the communities that we get our meat from. It's not just a matter of me coming to Ukul and saying, hey, uh, I'll pay you 500 or whatever, whatever. I think it's an exchange of value in the sense that um, we also try and give them better breeding techniques and all that kind of stuff for, okay. the, for the meat that they sell to us. So the, it's, it's an issue of shared value that we're trying to inculcate in, in everything that we do, yeah. So Nyamabantu. And, and, and clearly from what you're saying, yeah. the, the inspiration uh, comes from the fact that this is something, this is a business that the family has been yes. in somewhat. Yes. Um, how much of that has that been? An influence. An influence, yeah. I've, I think probably 90% of it. I mean, okay. you, you, I think as younger people, like my father always gives an example of uh, what my grandfather used to say to him that he took a, a stone and he threw it mm -hmm. and he's like mm -hmm. now you must throw your stone and let's see where you go so the idea is to always do mm -hmm. better and um, you know to improve on what the previous generation has left you mm -hmm. and that is what we're trying to do with Nyama.1 and we I mean, it's been a baptism of fire, but I am so grateful for the experience of the last eight or nine months. It's been mm -hmm. amazing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Let, let's talk about the baptism of fire. Let's yeah. talk about the ups and downs. Yeah. Starting with the ups in the first instance. <laughs> um, the, the capital to start this. Yeah, the yeah. capital to start this, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not in the position of a lot of people in this country. I was fortunate enough to find people who could help me okay. with the capital to start, uh, people who believed, and I mean, I think it's such a great thing and a great endorsement on your abilities to find people who will believe in what you're dreaming about mm. and say, okay, look, here's a chance and let's see what you can do with it. Mm. And that's what essentially happened to me when I came back and I was very fortunate. I'm so grateful that I had people who could actually see my and understand my vision. Mm. Um, the ups, I mean, I think at the core of it, especially when we're delivering meat to people, you can't... You, you can't put a price on the happiness that someone in Chitunguiza gets mm. when you tell them, mm. you know, it's priceless. You wow. really, you know, they're like, ah, you know, and it's so, the joy in them, they're so effusive in their gratitude and all that kind of stuff. So that for me, it's an intangible up, but for me, it means so much more. And I think that's what really drives us when we're trying to do that kind of business. Mm. Um, obviously, the first day we opened, we opened, unfortunately, at the beginning of COVID. Wow. Um, 14 days after the first lockdown on the 31st of March. Um, 
and it was so encouraging to see people getting into the shop and it was so full. We were like, wow, you know, we're starting a business in the worst health pandemic in the world of the last 200 years, <laughs> but this is what we got. So it was just, I just have so much gratitude for the last uh, eight months and um, I think that for me are the, is, the, is the big up. Mm. And yeah. the downs? Whew, the downs. <laughs> There's so much that happens in our economy that just makes it hard for, especially young businesses like mm. ours, startups mm. who are trying to go against the grain. I mean, we've got huge competitors. We've got guys that are, have been in the business for years. They've got, you know, acres and hectares and hectares of land that is full of cattle that are just eating and whatever. And we can't compete with them on that mm. scale. So the, the down is obviously the fact that we are in a very competitive market. And uh, we constantly have to adapt, readjust, just in order to stay competitive and stay relevant to the people who have decided that we are their choice of, you know, uh, their supplier of choice. And um, obviously, there have been a few incidents with, um, with soldiers where, especially, I think I remember speaking yes, to you about yes. it, when we, uh, you know, I was, yeah, it was a very traumatic experience at the time because I was made to watch as my staff were beaten by soldiers during the lockdown mm. um, for a manufactured reason that you could tell um, it holds no water. And What was the reason? Uh, and we're like, where is this person? Mm. You know? Um, I think it was just after they had announced the 3 p.m. cutoff as a, as a time to close. Mm. And these soldiers just came in one of these unmarked trucks and um, they burst into the shop. Initially, I think the more senior one then left and then the two subordinates stayed behind and just started asking questions like nitpicking, like what's happening here, what's going on there. And all our papers were in order. We had all of the permissions and the regulatory requirements that we needed to open during that time were mm. all up to scratch. Mm. Um, <clears throat> And, you know, it just went from zero to 100 so quick. Mm. And you could tell that these guys were just looking to, to inflict harm on someone or something. And they just took our manager and my staff to, to the back and they, they whipped them. Mm. And I was made to watch. So for me, initially, this was, you know, when people talk about these things, it's, it's so far from me. It doesn't happen close to me. I'm like, I've never seen that, you know. Mm. And... You're like, nah, it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. And then when you see it, it just brings the reality much closer to home that this is the kind of situation that we're in and so rather unfortunate. Mm, what did it do to you? <sighs> I was, uh, I mean, for the most part, I was very traumatized. Mm. Um, I am not, you know, because of my legal background, I don't fear law enforcement, you know. But soldiers are different, <laughs> you know. Soldiers are different. These are people who are just trained to shoot and, you know, so there's no, there's no talking from a legal basis with, uh, with soldiers, you know. And I could tell that this guy, you know, and I looked him dead in the eye and I was like, but what are you doing? What is this? And he did not care at all. You know, I could tell that he was, was a rabid animal that was just trying to inflict harm on someone. And he's like, no, I'm like, but why are you even beating these guys in the first place? Mm. You know. And there's no explanation. And then they just moved on. They went to the next bar. They, they raided alcohol and they left. Did you, I mean, as a, as a, as a lawyer yourself, did mm. you uh, report to yeah, the I police report, or anything? Has anything happened? No, nothing. Nothing? Nothing happened. Because, number one, the truck had no discernible, identifiable marks. Um, but they were in military They were fatigue. in military fatigue. And they had one of those military trucks. And this is in Highfield? This is in Highfield, yeah. Um, they had one of those military trucks, so the number plate was removed. Those signs that show you the barracks with the animals or whatever and the other numbers that usually you can use to identify these army trucks are not there. Um, so it just left me with a feeling of helplessness. And for example, my parents were in the military. So I can only imagine what someone who has no, you know, doesn't have that background, can feel like the helplessness that you have mm. when faced with such a situation. And to this day, I, I, uh, I worry about what kind of society we're living in if those kind of things go unchecked. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they do. Mm. I mean, worse could have happened. 
some people get shot and so on and so forth. We'll get to um, the society that we live we yeah. live in. So at the moment, you've got one outlet. Yes, uh, we've the, got the, one outlet. The, yeah. Highfield yeah. is is the plan to have more outlets. Around? Oh, definitely. The idea is to have at least two outlets in each province. Okay. And um, we are in talks to expand right now with a few of our partners, and yeah, we're very excited. Okay. So you're born in Highfields. Yeah. Okay. Which, which schools did you go to? I went to Hutton Park Primary School, mm -hmm. and then I went to Churchill Boys High School. Okay. Yeah. And then you went to uh, Rhodes University. Funny story. No. Mm, yeah. And then I went to I went to Solusi University for okay. a year. That's interesting. For a year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I went to Solusi University for a year in 2004 after high school where I studied, what was that even called? Uh, BBA Finance, Bachelor of Business Administration and Finance. I hated it. I didn't, mm. I didn't like it. I think for as long as I can remember, even before I could spell the word lawyer, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, as I remember in grade two in Mrs. Chari's class, she asked me what you want to be and where to write, mm -hmm. what I wanted to be. And I literally wrote lawyer, as an old lawyer. Mm. <laughs> but, but, so yeah. um, so I, I mean, as far as that's what I've wanted to be. So when, you know, I got to Solusi, I, I didn't want to go there. Mm. But, you know, my father is like, ah, go to Solusi, do the business thing first, and then you can... Uh, Afterwards, you can just pursue your law if you really want it, you know, mm. that kind of thing, like a current stick. <laughs> I was like, no, I want to do laws, and I want to do it now. Yeah. So I think I was only a solicitor for like a year, um, and by that time, I'd gotten my response from Rhodes to study law, and I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go to And Dad said it's fine? At the time, no. No. He was not particularly impressed, but um, he also respected that it's a choice that I made and that I really wanted to do. And yeah, eventually he came around. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you went and uh, you did your, uh, you graduated with a, with a law degree. Yeah. Um, to talk, to, talk to me about that, uh, that experience, uh, getting a degree. And uh, University was probably a very, um, it's like a mixed palette, a very mm -hmm. eclectic period in my life. I think I experienced different facets of myself that you learn yourself. I think that's the point of going sure. to university, amongst other things. And, you know, getting degrees is important, I guess. Um, you learn yourself. You learn who you are and you decide who you want to be. Mm. So literally, that's what university was for me. It was a time and a chance to 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 stretch my limbs and decide, decide and discover who I'm supposed to be and who I think I am. Mm. And some of it was painful, some of it was pleasant, you know. Mm. And, um, yeah, I'm grateful and happy for the experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So w when you graduated, um, did you work a bit in South Africa? What, what did you do? Yeah, I did. Um, first, when I graduated, I worked for a debt review company in Cape Town for like six months, I think. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to Johannesburg where I did my articles uh, for two years. And then I worked subsequently after that for another year um, after completing my articles for, mm -hmm. I think, two firms, mm -hmm. uh, Lang Attorneys and DRSM. And then we started our own firm with a friend of mine, uh, Megan, when we we're still um, just after leaving Langa Chinese. So it's, yeah, it's been an amazing, amazing, I think, 10, 11 years now mm. that, yeah. And, and where did the pool come from to come back home? Hmm. I wouldn't say it was just... Is it a push? Is it one a pool? Re one mm. reason. Yeah. I think it was mm. a myriad of factors that sure. just led to um, me coming back home. I think... In any case, I'd always felt the pull to come back home. Okay. Even when I was at school, um, the idea of actually settling in South Africa was, it was a fantasy for me. Uh, you want to be there, you want to have the nice cars, you know, mortgage and, you know, paying cars monthly or whatever it is that South Africans do. Um, but it wasn't something that I saw myself doing in the long term. For me, coming home was always going to be something very important and I needed to come and help with the family businesses. Uh, my father is a lawyer. And I wanted to, to come and play my part. And you know, I, I feel very attached to, to the law firm. So it's something that I'm still going to do and I'm going to put my energy and pour my energy into again. So for me, coming back home was always on the agenda. Mm. It wasn't some far-fetched dream, but what precipitated my return in 2018 was probably a mixed bag of trauma and, you know, <clears throat> Um, just a lot of decisions and things that were happening to me at the time. Mm. And I felt, you know, maybe I need to be a at a place where I can reset and recalibrate. Um, I mean, I got divorced in 2016. Mm -hmm. And um, that affected me in, in many ways. 
uh, some of the conversations I think I've, sure. I've shared with you as well. Mm. So, yeah, it did affect me in a lot of ways. And uh, then, so professionally and personally, a lot of things weren't happening for me at the time. And I was, I just found myself lost and I thought, you know what? Why am I continuing this right here, right now? I need, I've got somewhere where I can go back to and I can recalibrate and I can center myself and I can build myself up again. Mm. So that's pretty much what made me come back. And also, I think at that time, and there's a lot of euphoria in Zimbabwe after 2017, isn't it? Yeah. yeah after November. Mm. And the, the idea of possibilities, you know, abound, you know, there's so much that people are talking about and... I was intrigued by that. Mm -hmm. I wanted to come back to a country where, into this space where so much was possible, at least we thought at the time, um, where so much was possible, where there was just, you know, there was a kind of electricity at the time and I was mm -hmm. keen to be, to be mm -hmm. a part of that. Yeah. Well, what I, what I find interesting is that, um, I mean, like you say, that they, there's um, a certain pool around South Africa mm. with the bright lights mm, mm, and the fact that uh, somebody as young as you, mm. as talented as you with a law degree, um, felt you wanted to come back home. I, I find that uh, pretty, pretty fascinating. Uh -huh. Is it just, uh, you know, because you wanted to center yourself, dad is here, he's got a business and mm -hmm. is, it was that the biggest pull factor? No, I, I, I just always wanted to be back home. Wow. Um, and I remember I got a lot of flack for this on Twitter about two years ago at the time when I came back. And it's something I still truly believe. But maybe I did not articulate my position and what I was trying to say properly. And my, the point I was making was that Zimbabwe really needs her young people to come back home. You know, and I'm sure it's still unpopular right now. Mm. But Zimbabwe really needs her young people to come back home to create a critical mass against all of the injustices that we see today. You know? There are not enough voices of young people saying that this is not okay, this is not okay, this is not okay. I'm not saying there aren't any. Mm. Okay, I'm not discounting what a lot of young people are doing. But if we have a critical mass of voices in the country that are saying, guys, but this, this, because it's our future that's at stake, mm. isn't it? And I, I said it on Twitter at the time, and you know, I was called, called all kinds of things, deluded, privileged, what, 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 you know, and I accept that. Um, there are certain things that I can probably say and probably get away with because of my privilege that I enjoy. But I don't think that necessarily discounts certain things that I will also say on certain subjects. Mm -hmm. So I said that and I find that we really need um, a critical mass of young people in Zimbabwe. Critical mass of young people who are speaking truth to power. Mm -hmm. um, and right now, Katesi, we have a lot of lone voices here, there, whatever, whatever. And none of them are united as well. Mm. So I do feel that, for me, it was always going to be here. So what's the criticism, what's the pushback to, against that point of view that you, you hold? We are privileged. Okay. You can obviously say Zimbabweans must come back uh, because, you know, you are this, you are that, you know, the son of, or, you know, all those kinds of things that can be labeled against you. Um, and I mean, it's true. Mm. Um, but it's your lived experience. It's my lived experience as well. Mm. I mean, there are, I was talking to someone the other day, I was like, you know what, I, I get what you're saying about this not coming back home thing, because, for example, I can, you know, there are certain things that being me does for me, like it opens certain doors for me, and mm. I accept that. But it doesn't change the genuineness of my desire to see young people mm. come back mm. here and to, you know, to do, to express themselves laterally, you know, just to do what young people are supposed to be doing in an economy, mm. especially one that is so ripe with opportunity like Zimbabwe. Mm. Yeah. The, the opportunities that you see, is it because, again, because you're privileged? Are these opportunities that your generation should be able to be aware of? Yes and no. Mm -hmm. I think obviously there are certain things that I can do that not everyone can do. I mean, mm. I, I'm not sure everyone can speak to aunts, uncles, and whatever, and say, look, this is my plan, this is what I want to do, and you mm. know, they help you out. Mm -hmm. um, but by the same token, there is so much happening in Zimbabwe right now, even under the circumstances, that you find young people, I mean, we're just driving right now with my wife, and you know, you're, this area, we're like, wow, there are so many people here, what is happening here, <laughs> you know? That's opportunity. That's mm. literally how it works, you know. Mm. It's, um, so 
I think yes and no. The, yes, of course, there is the the fact that by virtue of my station in life and the certain things, there are certain things that are afforded to me mm -hmm. that not a lot of people can have. But by the same token as well, there's so much happening that we just have to, to learn to think outside of it and not let the constraints of our current environment mm -hmm. stop us from thinking that something's, you know, certain But there's about. some people who believe that um, they will stay in the diaspora until things change, until the opportunities are there, but you're saying those opportunities are already there. Yeah, but that's also the, the, the challenge with that kind of thinking. Yeah. It's not going to be like, you know, on your marks, get set, go, it's here now. You know, there's no line in the sand where you'll be like, the opportunities are here, no, <laughs> it's not going to happen like that. Mm. And that was also part of my thinking. I think when I stayed away a lot in South Africa, I should have probably come back earlier. I should have come back 2010 or 2011. Um, but I didn't. I just decided to start working in South Africa and all that. So I, th I thought like that as well. I thought, you know, let's give it time. You know, when things do this, things do. There's no formula for what's happening in this country. There's no roadmap, you know. There's no blueprint. Mm. So you can't even say, ah, look, I'll do this when this happens. Mm. So you, you're, you're saying you're seeing the opportunities. Are you, can you be specific in terms of where you're seeing the opportunities? I mean, agriculture, uh, agriculture. For young people? For young people as well. Okay. I mean, uh, um, agriculture, mining, you know, um, Commerce and a lot of I see a lot of e-commerce startups mm -hmm. coming up even in Zimbabwe, mm -hmm. and I mean uh, one of the people that I actually find intriguing, Kudam Sasiwa, mm -hmm. he's done so well in the last two years, you know, with his fresh in a box. But that's you know that's a business that starts from from just here. Yeah, yeah, you know, and he has now grown and. You have to look at people like that who are tearing up the rule book and just coming up with new ways to do their own things, like mavericks in their own regard. Mm. And I think you have to salute them when they do that. So not all of us think like that, and not all of us are supposed to be entrepreneurs. Mm. I think mm. everyone also wants a chance to just say, look, I need a job. Mm. I need to be able to pay my mortgage. I need to be able to go to a bank and say I've got money mm. and I can, you know, I can do X, Y, Z. So not everyone is supposed to be an entrepreneur, but there are also those kind of possibilities that are happening in this country. Yeah. From your end on experience, being in the diaspora, is the diaspora what it is meant, meant out to be by people? Is it all glamour? Is it all glitter and gold? I do think it's nice, yeah. It's, yeah, nice. it's a nice place to be, you know. But we probably owe it to ourselves as well and to our country and to children who will come after us mm. to try and create a better place for them here as well. Um, Fortunately for me, I was never in, I, I was, you know, I was a professional. Mm. So I never had, you know, had to do menial jobs and, you know, to struggle to, to make my way when I was outside the mm. country. Mm. Um, and I understand that a lot of people also go through that. A lot of people are not, you know, you have to clean toilets at McDonald's or whatever it is that you have to do just to survive so that you can send people money at home. Mm. And so for others, it could be glamorous. And for others, it's work. <laughs> you know, mm. you've, you've gone there and you've gone to work for your family so that you can create a better future for them. Mm. So I think, you know, it's a certain class of people who can then say, ah, oh, no, that's right, fine, you know, whatever, mm. whatever. I think the, the idea of having amenities like, you know, electricity, things like that, water, clean water, yeah. um, KFC, you know, if you're into that kind of thing. Those are probably nice little things that you can have outside, but I don't think anything beats home. Elif, you, you, you spend time in the diaspora, particularly in South Africa, a country where, <clears throat> um, I mean, there's been xenophobia all over the world, but there's been particularly uh, terrible xenophobia in South Africa. Did you, have you experienced it? No. No. Um, fortunately for me, I have not. But that's the strange thing about xenophobia, is, or should we call it Afrophobia, whatever it is. If you really think about it, we're talking about, you know, kwere kwere, you're coming from Mozambique, stealing our jobs mm. and all of mm. that. Mm. And I feel, so I'm very big on history. I'm very big on, like, African history mm. specifically, dating all the way from Egypt or Kemet, you know, as it is actually called, yeah. um, up to now. And before 1884, there's no boundaries, there's no borders. Mm. So the fact that someone then gets the you know, the goal to then say, ah, but you're not from here, you're not from there. What does that mean to be from somewhere? And even if you look at 
so traditionally africans are very i, I only realized that you know is tagazelo mitupo were actually a form of conservation for areas that people lived in so for example that's why i need to nube piri shoko soko is the same people mm -hmm. right and it basically spoke to a people who lived in a certain area that tried to protect a certain species of animal that's all it meant mm -hmm. So mofu, mpofu, and so on and so forth, mlambo, ntini, all of those things are the same things. So piri is Malawi, and it? Ngube, let's say South Africa. Shoko is here in Zimbabwe, what we call Zimbabwe now. So I feel like that kind of attitude comes from a place where you do not know your history. And I feel as Africans today, we are the worst people in terms of education of our history and awareness of ourselves. Right. And knowing who we are as a people and where we've come from because that has such an amazing impact on how you view yourself today and going into the future. Mm. So xenophobia for me is a very unfortunate um, and deplorable, you know, circumstance that we find ourselves in. And we're living through it every day. Mm -hmm. I mean, in corporate boardrooms in South Africa until, you know, you can get somewhere. But the moment you can't do something, you mm. know, you can't bore, mm. or you can't say something, you, you're not... But you never experienced it I never yourself. experienced that, yeah. no. Yeah. Um, slightly, but it's not, it wasn't enough to, to stifle me, mm. because I, I knew what I wanted to achieve, and I was not yet, you know, hitting that ceiling. Mm. I mean, I was probably close, but I'd never had a direct confrontation with xenophobia and mm. um, yeah, I'm grateful for that as well. Mm. Let us come back home in terms of uh, the, 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 the politics. Do you get the sense that um, all the political leaders uh, in the opposition in government, do they get the concerns of your generation? No. What are those concerns? I think we just want a chance to create the conditions for our own happiness, to create conditions of our own future as young people, mm -hmm. and to make sure that there is a future left for others that will come after us. And for me, when I look at the political spectrum on both ends in Zimbabwe, I find there's a severe lack of sincerity. Mm -hmm. um, there's a severe lack of sincerity on both sides in our leadership um, and in the tone and tenor of our politics, you know. We've agreed on this a lot of times that this binary language of our politics is mm. problematic. Mm. You know, you can't either be this or that. Mm. There surely must be a different way of doing things that doesn't necessarily make you one or the other. And I feel as if <clears throat> up until the conversation in our politics is focused on what Zimbabweans need, on who Zimbabweans are, on what it means to be Zimbabwean, mm. our politics is always going to get into the way our politics actually gets in the way of being Zimbabwean because we don't know what that identity is. Mm. What is being a Zimbabwean? Mm. You know, what, what, what does that mean for someone who's outside the country? What does that mean for someone who is growing up a five-year-old now to be called a Zimbabwean? What do you hold on to that makes you proud about being a Zimbabwean? And I don't see any sincerity from our politicians in that regard in terms of making the people of Zimbabwe the subject matter of the politics. Mm. It's about self-enrichment, it's about looting. On both sides? On both sides, yeah. I mean, it's not just on one. Self-enrichment, looting, it's about the pursuit of power for the sake of the pursuit of power. Mm. You know, not for the people. Not for the people. Mm. How old are you, Elif? I'm 35 this You're year. You're 35. Mm. And, and that's what you... My last year is a youth thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Demographically, so... <laughs> and, and that's how you feel about the, 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 the political offerings on, on both sides? Yeah. Um, and and what does, what, where, where does that leave you in terms of your engagement? Well, I feel, like I was saying earlier, that there is a need for a lot of young people to speak up so that we can create a critical mass of voices around the issues that matter to us mm -hmm. as young people. Um, and I use young people loosely because I'm, you know, I'm tittering on the brink of going mm -hmm. into <laughs> um, something beyond that's called a young person. So. I do feel there's a need to create a critical mass of voices, rather, that can speak to the issues that that are bothering young people. Mm. But I also find let's let's unpack those issues. Yeah, let's unpack those issues. Uh, what are those issues? You're talking about, uh, you know, making a life for yourself. Could mm. you go in systematically in terms of what those issues are? 
well, for, I your, think for young people? We can start with the politics. Okay. Um, we're, uh, look, I've, I've always thought, <clears throat> and I speak with the benefit of having uh, two parents who both fought in the Liberation War, you know, who actually fought, you know, mm. people who went and sacrificed their lives as teenagers. My mm. mother was 14, my father was 20. So, and, and I've got the privilege and the benefit of having two very different stories of, you know, why people went to the war. Mm. My father was out of a sense of duty. My mother was forced to okay. go to the war. And the impact that those experiences had on them differently mm -hmm. shows me that what is happening in our country today cannot possibly be what people went to the war to die for. Because mm -hmm. a lot of people died. You know, a lot of people lost their children. Um, a lot of people lost their fathers, mothers, and so on and so forth. Mm. And I don't think the state of affairs with what is happening in our country today can be justified. Or you can say the blood that was lost there justifies what's happening today. Mm. It's a complete betrayal of what people went to the war for. And it's strange, you know, to look at it and think, I mean, even subsequent to, to, to independence, there's so many things that happened just after that that you start questioning, like, what were people really fighting for in mm. the beginning? Mm. Um, so I, I think, and I mean, this is my own view, that th the struggle itself was hijacked a long time ago. Okay, what we call the liberation struggle was hijacked a long time ago. I don't think anyone was fighting for an economy where certain people can be billionaires and other people don't have anything to do. Mm. People don't even have an idea of what they're going to have to eat at night. People sleep on the streets of Harare without money in Dagumba. On some level, that cannot be what people were fighting for. And so I think there's been a huge betrayal of what people went to the war for. And you then have today people who were taxi drivers in Zambia in the 1970s purporting to speak for all versions. Mm -hmm. um, and it just shows you that the real people who had the intentions of fighting for the war have been sidelined and marginalized. Fighting for Zimbabwe, rather. Mm -hmm. Have been sidelined and marginalized. And certain people, a cabal of people, who are intent on self-enrichment and who are intent on um, lining their pockets with as much natural resources as they can are the ones that are actually at their home. Mm. So, so one would say, you, you know, the generation of your father mm. liberated this country mm. uh, and somewhat uh, things went wrong, like you're saying, the mm. struggle, you know, got... Um, uh, uh, stolen or betrayed mm -hmm. um, your generation mm -hmm. has its own mandate yeah. uh, what what do you think that generational mandate is i think it comes back to what you know my grandfather's story about yeah i've thrown this the rock here mm. and you must throw it further mm. what that looks like i do not know yet mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of inspirational young people in Zimbabwe that I've just seen in the last few years that I've mm. been here. Mm. People who I think are capable of leadership on a grand scale who can push our ideas and our agenda forward as young people. But I think old people are in the way. Mm -hmm. I really think so. In boardrooms, I know you've got CEOs who've been CEOs for 20 years, mm -hmm. you know, in this country. Mm -hmm. um, and that spreads from corporate and the private sector to the public sector, you know, all through government. We've got this idea that young people have got nothing to offer. They've got nothing worth of value to offer. Mm. And I see that, you know, a lot, especially now that I'm running my own business and I'm trying to... So you get into meetings with people and people are like, oh, it's you are the guy, <laughs> you know, and they don't take you seriously because you're a young person. Mm. Mm. But um, we need to change those attitudes and we need to realize that it's the young people who are the custodians of the future. And even when you're in positions of leadership... You're not serving yourself. You're serving people and you're trying to create a legacy, not only for yourself, but for those that come after you. Mm. And maybe that is a message we constantly need to tell ourselves from the time we're children up until we get to, to elderly ages, especially in leadership. Am, am I wrong in, in, in saying that um, to some extent your, your generation has also become part of the problem? in that you have joined hands, rather your generation, I'm mm. not saying you, I mean, I mean mm. your generation, that your generation is actually joined hands in betraying the principles of the struggle, why people went into the str into struggle, in becoming 
part of the po toxic politics, mm -hmm. part of the binary poly politics. So in, in ten, in, in ten, in, in, instead of being this part of the solution, mm -hmm. you're part of the problem. Am I getting it wrong there? You're saying the, my generation is standing in the, in the way, mm -hmm. but have you not joined my generation to talk the kind of politics that my generation talks? No, definitely. I do think that is, um, that is correct. But that is, you know, that then becomes the task of those that, you know, will come after you to try and speak a different uh, language in terms of our entire body politic. But I don't think the space that has been cultivated allows that. Mm. Okay. Um, you know, if you, especially if you go to high density sub suburbs in the areas there, if you go there, you've already been painted with a certain brush. Mm -hmm. Okay? And these are young people as well that you're seeing doing this, mm -hmm. right? like you're saying. Mm -hmm. And then, which is happening here. And once you go there, you're painted. So, what happens to the people in the middle? Mm -hmm. But for you to be able to have a voice that is heard in the midst of all that chaos, in the midst of that partisanship, mm -hmm. where people will take you seriously, it's very difficult in this country. It's very difficult to find people who will listen to you because if you're, <coughs> excuse me, if you're neither X or Z, mm. you know. So I think that's, that is our task in, uh, for my generation. It's a big task. It's a big task and we need if to create we a new way. Yeah. If, if you guys do not break this rot, mm. then the future looks the same. Well, it would be nice to be able to be given a chance to, to try and break it without the, the sanction of jail mm -hmm. for protesting outside uh, a car hire company. <laughs> you know, that's a young guy, mm -hmm. uh, that user young guy. So it would be nice to be able to be afforded a space where those kinds of rights and all those kind of fairy things are, are, you know, are allowed, but we don't. Mm -hmm. We don't have that kind of... Uh, but the, the, some people would say that there's a price to be paid for freedom. There is indeed. You, you're not going to be given a blank check to, to do as you please as far as politics is concerned. Yeah, but that, that works in, in the context where, in the context rather, where you know, we're on an even keel. Mm -hmm. okay? you're, you're talking about someone who's trying to be impartial when an elephant and an ant are fighting. Mm -hmm. Those are completely different dynamics. I think, yes, there's a price to be paid, but that price surely can't, you know, it surely can't be a price that includes my life in a country where I'm supposed to be led by other people who are supposed to have liberated me. Mm -hmm. That makes no sense. Mm. You know, the fact that people are shot dead by a military that is supposed to be a people's army to protect them is ridiculous. Mm. The fact that I have to watch my stuff get assaulted by soldiers in my shop, in my country, not in South Africa, in Zimbabwe, soldiers come to my shop and they assault people and I have to watch is ridiculous. So there's no space you know, we, we can have all these discussions, but until we address the root cause that, you know, this, this is not sustainable, you know. And this it, is authoritarian, it's not sustainable. It's, it's, mm. it's um, authoritarian, mm. it's not sustainable, it's ridiculous. But we can say that until the cows come home. Mm -hmm. We can. And these guys will tell you that they went to war, they fought. And some and of them come and come, come and get the stuff if you want it, but that's not the that's not the Zimbabwe we need to create. You see, that's not the Zimbabwe where violence seems to be the means to get the messages across. Mm. Cannot be the Zimbabwe that we want to create and leave for our children. Mm. We need to create a Zimbabwe where dialogue and discourse are what actually push our you know our country forward. It's unfortunate that this is how they got power. Mm. You know, it's unfortunate. Also fortunate at the same token because no one is going to give it to them. But we cannot then start fighting our own liberators. I, I don't understand how that, you know, there are those who are willing to do it, but that cannot be my part, mm. you know. Mm. And even specifically, you know, if you think about it, in any struggle, people play different roles. Mm. Not all of us are going to be holding a gun. Mm. You know, others are students in UK doing whatever they can do to help. So, I don't want to go into, I've, I've, you know, I've got children now, mm. you know. I don't want to go to war to, to leave my children and then come back. Mm. I don't want that kind of Zimbabwe. Ooh, ooh, ooh. You, you've, you've got an idea of a Zimbabwe that you want. Mm. And you've got an idea of how 
you want to get to that Zimbabwe. Mm. What's stopping you from following that ideal? I am following that ideal. What does, what, what does that involve? Um, I, th I mean, we've worked together in this journey for a few years now. Right. Um, for those who don't know, you and I have, have worked the journey of mentoring each other. Mm. Um, yeah. Each Proceed. other. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I benefited from, from mentoring you. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a two-way process. Yeah. It's a, so define that to me. I think my various involvement with a lot of political formations that sought to speak a different language rather than the binary language that we speak every day. Um, for me, that was my contribution. Mm. That is how I can help and how I can create the conditions for Zimbabwe that I'd like to see in the future. Mm. Um, I'm not going to go into any bush or you know, start some kind of subversive war or whatever, but I'm going to, I would like to think that I speak truth to power. Mm. I'd like to think that I generally conduct myself in the way that I would like other people to treat me. Mm. And that's how it starts. You have to start with yourself. Mm. Um, and the Zimbabwe I want is one where we respect human rights, mm. respect each other's humanity, and use Ubuntu as our guiding principle, because at the end of the day, we're African people. So you, we're talking about your preferred way of bringing about change, <laughs> as opposed to the, the violent one, obviously. Mm. But my sense is that that is also tough. Yeah. Where you you trying to inspire people, you're trying to compassionate politics, uh, change around values and principles, mm -hmm. and running away from the binary politics that we have right now. That can't be easy. What what has been your experience? It hasn't been easy. And I think you have to look at it in the context of 30, 40 years of people doing things a certain way and understanding that this is how things are done. So to try and, um, to try and bring a new language to that space is probably very difficult. Mm. But I'm also acutely aware, I'm not naive or anything, I'm acutely aware of the fact that um, this is not an easy, it's, it's a war of attrition, you know, if you can call it that. Yeah. It's a very slow, you know, process where you're chipping away little blocks, chipping mm. away little blocks. But, you know, I think eventually it will, it will catch on because people are also acutely aware of the fact that mm. we've done things a certain way for the last 30 years and it's gotten us nowhere, you know. And... Um, when is it 2023 2022 people will mm. come they'll give you sacks of rice and t-shirts and you'll vote for them mm. um what's the message 2022 23 people will come and they say the last election was stolen this time it's ours and you'll vote for them mm. and the same things will happen mm. but what we're not looking at is the substance of the messaging coming from these people what we're not looking at is you know what values are these people inculcating in the kind of Zimbabwe that I want? I know, I know these are very, uh, I don't want to say high level for the sound, you know, for the, for the fear of being labeled classist or whatever, but these are very high level philosophical things that you need to think about. And perhaps that is the folly of trying to think of politics in that way. Mm. That, um, you know, you equip your, your officious person, your bystander with that kind of, you imbue them with that kind of mentality and you say, this is what my person is supposed to be thinking about. In actual fact, they're not. They're thinking about, yes, I want rice. Yes, I want t-shirts. Mm. But the challenge for us is, is, is to scrape that, you know, if we can call it a surface or a table and say, let's go beneath that and build from the start mm. and build from the foundation. And for me, any political movement that is serious about trying to create a better Zimbabwe for people moving forward, will have to address that. You, you have to address those politics of my baggy rice and t-shirts. But how do you do it in a way that people get, that gets people to listen to your message? Mm. Rather, because I mean, those rallies are vacuous. Mm. You know, it's thousands of people, rice, t-shirts, party, you know, whatever dancehall artist, Zim dancehall artist is out at the time, he'll perform, and so on and so forth, on both sides of the spectrum, mm. you know. Mm. And it's, again, I think it's an indictment of our space that we're speaking about two sides of a spectrum. There should be another way of doing things. There should be another way of thinking about our political space. But unfortunately, mm. there isn't. Uh, you're, you're obviously, your coming home means mm. that you're hopeful about, about the country. No. 
And yes, um, I'm not hopeful in the sense that I look at uh, certain of my peers who are in both party formations, mm -hmm. ZANU PF, MDC, and so on and so forth. And you realize that they are just little deputy Jesuses of the people that they are following after. You know, the same culture of cronyism, you know. Pay, Your generation. My generation. Wow. You know, the same culture of cronyism, the same culture of patronage that has bedeviled our society is what you find with a lot of younger guys coming through, even in the party in ZANU-PF, even in, uh, in the MTC, the party as well. So uh, that is kind of disheartening mm -hmm. when you see that because you're expecting good young people will come through, they have different ideas, they want to do things differently, and they want to create a better Zimbabwe. But yeah, the, the culture is just me, 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 me. I need to eat, I need to get this. Even for your generation. Even for my generation. That's, you know, that's not something that's particularly unique to those that have come before us. So, but I am hopeful. Um, and, you know, notwithstanding her politics, I really look up to Fazi a lot, Mahira. Fazi Mahira. Yes. Mm. Um, because I think with her yellow campaign, she showed us what can be. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a campaign that was based on issues. You know, not partisan. You know, it was a campaign that was solely focused on issues. And it really energized and excited me. Mm -hmm. If I was a Mount Pleasant voter, I would have voted for her. Mm -hmm. Because... So, she, so we need more of we that. We need more of but that. But we don't, we're not getting more We're not of getting that. more of that. So, I mean, notwithstanding our politics now, but that for me mm. was the blueprint. Mm. You know, the yellow campaign was exactly what we need to do in Zimbabwe, even Kumamisha in rural areas. You know, mm. people tend to think Makaya are just, um, you know, these uh, automatons that just, you know, give them teachers. Those are very smart people. Mm. Those are very reasoning and intelligent people. And if you can put together a campaign that speaks to their issues in a manner that has not, that has addressed issues that they have lived with for the last 30 or 40 years, they will vote for you, mm. you know, in a normal society. Mm. But we have intimidation, you know. We've got soldiers that beat up people. We've got police that, you know, we've got youth brigades that go and do X, Y, Z, M, I, So the space is there, but it's unfair. Mm. And it's tarnished and, you know, poisoned by all these little things. So... I don't have the solutions, mm. but I do hope that I will inspire other people who probably might come up with those solutions. Mm. Yeah. And, and with that, you think coming back home was the right thing to do? Oh, yeah. That's interesting. It was the right thing to do for me. Mm -hmm. So you and I walked um, a journey of mentoring, like we've said before, mm -hmm. and, and I find that uh, mentor, mentoring somebody is, is, I get mentored as I'm mentoring you. Mm -hmm. um, um, talk to me about role models who are your role models at the moment who are the dead or alive are both dead um thomas sankara mm -hmm. obviously che guevara mm -hmm. i i tend to be a bit of a lefty mm -hmm. so thomas sankara che guevara amilka cabral martin luther king malcolm x jim hendrix mm -hmm. you know and so on and so forth i just had my father mm -hmm. um uh, role model i think if I can be half the man that he is, you're dead. Yeah, I think mm. I'll have done well. Mm. You know, if I can be half the man that he is, he inspires me on so many levels. And you know, it's <clears throat> I was asking him about a legal problem the other day, and he just rattled off sections off the top of his head. <laughs> and I was like, but uh, and I'd have to go and read the you know the section and the SI to to understand what you're saying. And mm. but you know, so he's a role model for me and. He has always been my superman. Sobuza Gulandebe. Yes, Sobuza. And talk to me about the conversation that you and your dad have mm. on these kind of things. Because he got the gun mm. to go and liberate this country. Yeah. Your mom was forced mm. to go and liberate this country. Mm -hmm. And you're talking a kind of di different politics. Mm. Where does your dad sit when it comes to that and seeing the frustrations that you're going through? I mean, he's equally frustrated. I think he... Like I'm saying, you know, for different reasons that they both went to the war for. and But they all meet, my father and mother, they all meet at the frustration. Mm. So he is bitterly disappointed with how things have turned out. Mm. Because he feels that a lot of the principles that they fought for have been betrayed. Mm. Um, I'll give you a very good example. Mm. 
so we have a, a farm in Somapula, which is uh, as a result of the land reform program and whatnot. Um, this farm is literally where my grandparents were moved off. Hmm. Okay? We're talking 1940s, 50s, thereabouts. Yeah, thereabouts. 1940s. In fact, 1930s with the Land Apportionment Act. So this is where my grandparents, my great-grandparents, Gula, my grandfather was removed from there. And when we were given back this piece of land in 2002, 2003, the elderly white man who was there <clears throat> remembered my grandfather. And he literally said, ah, are you related to so-and-so who mm. used to, mm. I grew up with those guys and they used to walk all the way to Lower Gwele to go to school. Lower Gwele is probably 100 kilometers from there. Mm. And they used to walk to school from there on holidays to come visit their fathers who are now indentured as servants on that same piece of land. So they take land away from you. Mm. They take your cattle, mm. right? And then they make you a slave on that land to work for them. Mm. It is those same people that we're now compensating today. Okay. It's those same people that we're now compensating today. Now, if you tell me that my father and my mother went to the war so that they could do that... Doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It's a complete betrayal of the principles of why people went to the war. Because land was the issue. Mm. Land was literally the principle behind people going to war. Mm. So, you know, I speak to him a lot. I speak to him probably more than most people do. And he feels betrayed and he's very disappointed in how things have gone. The same I can say for my mother, mm. who went as a teenager. And you can imagine what young girls see in the war, the horrors that they see. You know, 14, I was barely watching under 18 horror movies. <laughs> but, you know, she was in a war and she experienced all of that. So to see all of that and then have things the way they are going, mm. I think you can put two and two together and see that, you know, mm. it can't have been... Mm. It can't have been what they, they envisaged when they went to the war. Mm. Mm. Having gone through mentorship yourself, are you mentoring anybody? No. 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 no There's a yet. young man I was talking to a few weeks ago, a few yeah. months ago, sorry. Yeah. But then the, the lockdown happened and, you know, conversations just kind of stopped. But no, not, not particularly. Mm. I don't feel I'm in any space or station to, to mentor anyone. I just want to... I'm still learning so much about But this person was coming to you and said, could you mentor me? Yeah, yeah he did yeah. come to me and Clearly said... Clearly they'd seen something in you that they wanted uh, you to pass on. I was, yes, yeah. I was equally shocked, but I was like, you know, whenever, whatever I can do to help, I'll help. Mm. Um, but I'm still learning so much about myself. I'm still growing. And growth, excuse me, is so painful, you know. Mm. But the results of it are amazing. Adulting is not easy, hey? Adulting is not easy, not in this country. Mm. Um, but the results of growth are amazing. And if you look back, I was just looking back the other day and thinking, oh, 2016, 2017, elephant, we're here now. Mm. It's, um, I think it's just testament to God's grace and God's glory. Mm -hmm. how, how much does your, what, what role does your faith play in your life? A lot. A lot. Mm. Talk to me about that. Um, I believe in God. Mm. And I think he... He rescued me from a very dark place that I was in. Mm. I think 2016, 2018, that time was a very, very dark period in my life. And I wasn't centered. And I don't think if it wasn't for my belief in God, if it wasn't for my, my faith in God, mm. I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have come out of that. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You, um, you look in good shape. Do you, I, have, I, I do do you have a routine <laughs> that, that you follow? Um, um, I run. Book. I run. Mm -hmm. I run um, almost every other day. And uh, we've now started this uh, home gym with a friend of mine, and we work out mm -hmm. Monday to Friday. Mm -hmm. So I'm not home, yeah, just after work. So we just, yeah, I just trying to stay fit. I mean, my little brother about two months ago mm. was saying to me, hey, you know, your stomach's now going beyond your chest, so you need to look into that. And now uh, we're the same. <laughs> looking good. Yeah. So now we're the same. So I look at him and say, where's your yeah. stomach going? Yeah. Excellent. <laughs>
one of the books that built me as a young person. Mm. It built and shaped my understanding of the world and my place in it as a black person. Mm. Um, it speaks generally about the ancient Egyptians because we know, for example, that there were no Arabs in Africa until 600 AD. Mm. So who were those people who were there? <clears throat> you know, They were not Phoenicians, they were not Babylonians, they were black people like you and me. But, you know, if you look at history that's written by French writers like Champollion and so on and so forth, you'll find that there's a deliberate attempt to make Africans feel inferior mm. because they've got such a rich history, right? But by the same token, for Africans to get the respect of people across the world, we don't need to create some primordial, pristine history where we're all kings and mm. queens mm. just to be able to get human dignity. Mm. So this book basically debunks all of these myths about uh, who Egyptians were and how we are actually all descendants of people from Egypt, mm. uh, from ancient Kemet. It speaks about Akhenaten, who I think is one of the most important Egyptian pharaohs of all time. He is the father, he's credited as the father of monotheism, mm -hmm. um, although he was described as a heretic during ancient Egyptian times because he moved them away from the idea of a one god to the idea, uh, from the idea of many gods to, to the god. idea of one god. So Akhenaten is the son of Aten and Aten being God. And um, Queen Nefertiti is his wife, and Tutankhamun, whose you know, uh, tomb gave us all these treasures about Egypt and all this information. So I think that's a very important book and should actually mm. be taught mm. in African mm. curricula. Mm. That's what you say, yeah? Yeah. And it, it sounds like. It's a very, very important mm. book. So, and uh, Sheikh Anta Diop is probably a once-off mm. because in the 1940s and 50s, he was a nuclear physicist, uh, a black man in Senegal, one of the few to ever actually attain that at that time. And I mean, now they come a dime a dozen. But Sheikh Anta Diop, very important. And then uh, closely related to that, is I should have mentioned Secrets of the Exodus mm. by these two Jewish boys, uh, Roger and Mesut Saba. They carry on from what Sheikh Anta Diop was saying. And they even include testimonies from people like Herodotus, who is mm. credited as the father of history. Mm. When Herodotus went to Egypt, he actually literally said, the people's skin is like the color of the soil. The color of the soil in the upper Nile is black. Mm. Yeah, you know, in the lower Nile, right? Because it's up there. The color of the soil in the lower Nile uh, Valley is black. Complete, complete black. And he described them to the T. And a lot of people don't know that Pythagoras, all of those things were borrowed from Africa. But, you know, we don't know that. And I think it has an impact on how we see ourselves, how we view ourselves as Africans, as, as citizens of the world, and understanding that you are more than the sum of your current circumstances. You know, Africa is <clears throat> Africa is a pariah in you know in global discussion, in global conversations, even in the collective global consciousness. The moment you mention Africa, you're thinking about children in Kwashioka and big stomachs mm. and flies everywhere. Mm. And I feel like we need to change that narrative. We need to, but that starts with understanding where we come from. Mm. And I don't think there's enough of that. Mm. Yeah. And the other book is um, the beautiful ones are not yet born. Yeah, by Akweyama. Mm -hmm. um, I read that book at a time when, again, I think it was part of my, I wouldn't say political awakening, but like, like the arousal of my consciousness as mm. a black person and someone I, you know, as, as a political actor in my head anyway. It's literally post-independent uh, Ghana and the same circumstances that we find ourselves in. Mm. Politicians in Mercedes-Benz, people don't have this and that. I mean, you can read uh, The Beautiful Ones Are Not Yet Born by Akweyama. You can read Why We Saw Blessed Again by Akweyama. And the message is the same. Mm -hmm. And you begin to ask yourself, what is it about Africa that we need to do to rid ourselves of this thing? Mm -hmm. Because it's neocolonialism. It's literally um, the continuation of colonialism, but just using different masters. Mm -hmm. How is it possible that people driving around in Mercedes-Benzes when your own people are still suffering? We're doing it to ourselves. We're doing it to ourselves. Yeah. So at some point... It's actually not at some point. That conversation has been had, but the people who are adorned with the instruments of power do not care. Mm. You know, they, they don't listen to the voices of the voiceless. Mm. Mm. Wow. That's a very impressive uh, reading list. Actually, when I saw uh, the, the, the first one about African civilization, I said to myself, I need to, I need to read you this. You need to get that. Absolutely. Elif yeah. uh, Bele, like I said, uh, you're, I'm very passionate about your generation. Uh, playing its role in uh, the development of the new Zimbabwe that we all uh, so much um, 
uh, crave for yeah. and that space that uh, sits between the binary um, of uh, you ought to be this or that and maybe around that which is your your passion so thank you so much for uh, creating time away from Nyama Dotbantu <laughs> and uh, coming and spending this uh, uh, quality conversation, having this quality conversations with us. So thank you so much for that. You, Allow me to so tend to our viewers uh, on the continent, uh, in the diaspora and uh, at home who follow this uh, weekly conversation uh, and uh, ask you to uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel so that you get a notification every Monday at 7 a.m when the these quality conversations go on, go out we have done gone a step further and created a podcast of conversations um, if you scroll down after your comments uh, click and subscribe to our podcast so that you don't miss out on this quality of conversation so thank you so much for making this show what it is until next time cheers to you all